want to invite you to open up to the book of Acts, chapter 3, which is where we'll be this morning. I want to begin by just acknowledging the fact that our culture, our city, our country, um, we're still sort of in a, in a precarious situation, I would say at the very least, where we, what we really have before us is, I would just say, competing worldviews in regards to what the world is supposed to look like. Um, when I use the phrase Chaz, how many of you are familiar with what that means? He's, when I say the word Chaz, this is not uh, a president of uh, one of the fraternities at TCU, okay? It's not a Brody kind of guy. Uh, Chaz is uh, the acronym for the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone that exists currently in Seattle, Washington. And it's a, a six-block sort of area that has been uh, taken over, if you will, uh, by various people. Uh, there, you can't say that it's one group that occupies it. Uh, there have been several Twitter accounts that have sort of come up where people are going into this autonomous zone and they're documenting what's happening. And it's really interesting from the standpoint of just studying people and how people are supposed to function in the absence of really laws, um, direction, guide. There's no police in Chaz at this moment. Uh, in fact, I think the police have walked back in, but they're not actually policing. And what you have is you have this group of people with this particular worldview, uh, and I think their intention is, is really, really uh, in the right place for the most part. But what's interesting is seeing uh, sort of the, the result or the consequence of living in a, a six-block circle with no police, um, no laws, and it's just everybody's goodwill and, and best intentions. Now, one of the things that happened a couple of days ago inside Chaz was uh, the people who were in there, it sort of resembled sort of a block party, and they decided to sort of build this community garden, if you will. And so they came in uh, and, and sort of uh, made some rookie mistakes just in the beginning, but instead of like tilling the ground up, they just dumped topsoil on the ground, kind of threw some seeds in it. And you're like, well, this is kind of weird, right? Uh, but this is how they were going to grow food and sustain themselves. Um, about a day and a half later, I was following this Twitter account in the middle of the Capitol Hill autonomous zone in the absence of police officers um, and just we're all going to love each other really well and get along, this homeless guy took over the community garden. And he had no shirt on, had a bow staff, like was like uh, summoning his, uh, his greatest um, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle that he possibly could, was trying to fight people in the garden, was rolling around in the dirt, sort of overthrowing all the things that they were doing, but there was nobody there to stop it. And I sort of chuckled a little bit and, and uh, I thought, man, what a, what a mess, but, but I understand that in their minds, they're, they're trying to paint the world as, as they hope it would be, and, and maybe in their own minds as, as they think it should be. Well, it's one thing to think about that apart from the gospel, but it's another to understand what God's intentions are for this world, for this kingdom, this earth that we live in, and what is the world supposed to be like? What's the ideal scenario? And for the Christian, here's what it looks like. Our paradigm in, in answering that question is not so much what is the world supposed to be like, but rather when God's people 
walk in obedience and faithfulness according to the way that God would want his people to walk, then therefore, what is the consequence to that faithfulness? Not our best idea, not the most noteworthy book or system or principle that we're trying to institute, but rather, what does the world look like with God's people faithfully and biblically walking with the hope of the gospel before a fallen world? There's this moment in Acts 3 where right after something miraculous happens, which we'll look at in just a moment, Peter preaches this sermon and he begins to talk about what the world should be. And he points the people in the presence of the miraculous to God reconciling and how God is bringing his kingdom not just in heaven but here on earth and then what the world is supposed to look like. And so we as Christians are to be primarily motivated from obedience to the gospel and obedience to the scriptures, but more specifically, when we walk in obedience, what then does, what happens in the world that we live in? What does our city look like? What does our college campus look like? What does our home look like in light of this? But before we get to painting that picture, we want to back up and begin reading in Acts chapter 3 about a miracle that takes place. And this is the first miracle that happens in the life of the church age. And so the people of God are full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, They begin to to proclaim the message, walk in obedience. Um, Thousands upon thousands get saved with the gospel. People far from God come to know Christ as a result of just being faithful to the scriptures. No gimmicks, no tricks, just straight up, just, just preaching and teaching and living the word of God. People get saved. And then we pick up in Acts chapter one or Acts three, verse one, and we begin to, to find out about the very first miracle that ever occurred in the life of the church. Notice where the text says this. Now Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Peter and John. Two of the leaders of the early church were going to the temple at the ninth hour. This would have been at about three o'clock in the afternoon. We saw last week how the movement and the rhythm of the church was one of, they would come to gather in in large groups, thousands of people, but then they would break off from those groups and they would go home and they would continue the fellowship and the prayer and committing themselves to the apostles' teachings. And so the rhythm of the church in this time, it's the same rhythm that exists and should exist in the life of the church today. We gather together in large groups. We see the generations that are are present, the old and the young, the black and the yellow, the purple and the white, and everybody in between. We come together because we need each other. And it's God's intention that his church be reflective of the community around it. But then we recognize that sitting in the pew and in the row is not enough, that there has to be something else. That if we're going to know each other and we're going to fellowship, like he talked about last week, that we've got to get into circles and we've got to start wrestling with some deep things. We need each other. We need that intimacy. We need that community with one another. And so the rhythm was was large and, and then the rhythm would get small and then it would get large again. And then here we have in this moment, Peter and John, they're going to the temple. They're getting large again. They're going to where the multitudes are. And then it says in verse two, as they were going to the temple at three o'clock in the afternoon and a man lame from birth was being carried. 
And they laid him daily at the gate of the temple, which is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now, a couple things about this man. Every day, he would have been dependent upon his family and friends to get him to the gate where it was most likely that he would experience an act of mercy from God through God's people in giving the alms. So we sang this song earlier, his, his mercy is, is more. There, there's nothing greater. We long for God to show mercy to his people. And this man was completely dependent upon family and friends daily, bringing him to the gate so that he would receive alms as an act of mercy from God through God's people. But if we jump ahead into chapter four and we look very quickly at verse 22, we find out something else about the man and this is what we learn from the context. The man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So you have this 40-year-old man for four decades, think about this. He was lame and he could not walk. He was completely dependent upon people to take him to and from. He was incapable physically of getting up and walking and running and jogging. And so here he is at the temple of the gate called the beautiful gate. And really what this beautiful gate was is it was the gate that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of women. And an early Jewish historian, Josephus, he described the beautiful gate as this ornate gate that was covered in brass, that it was golden looking, it was magnificent. It was the place to be. It was the place that all the wealthy people, that those that had means were gonna walk through the gate and to go worship. And so Peter and John were, were going to the temple at the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. This lame man from birth was being carried daily, brought to this place, placed at the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing, verse three, Peter and John, asked, uh, seeing Peter and John about to go in the temple, he asked to receive the alms and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And he says, look at us. And he fixes attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. My kids at my house, when I want to get their attention, and I want them to pay close attention to me, I'll say this to them, and Haley will say this to them sometimes, to say, look at me with your eyes. You know, if they're in trouble, you know, or, or you're in trouble with someone, you, you avoid eye contact, right? If there's like shame or there's anger or like you don't, you're scared, you don't know what's going to happen, you're intimidated by someone, like you, you just don't make eye contact. And I'll say this to my kids sometimes, I'll, I'll look at them and I'll say, look, listen to me with your face, I want to see your eyes. And sometimes um, I even have to go uh, get real close to them. And I'm always really, really careful about how tender or aggressive I can be in doing this. And sometimes when I really want them to hear something, I'll, I'll grab them uh, by, by the cheeks with my hands. And it's not always look at this and, and look what you did wrong, but there's these tender moments that exist between a dad and their kids at times. And sometimes, uh, like it was with, with Lucy, my youngest, I just grabbed her by the cheeks and I squeezed her cheeks, first of all, because you just have to do that. It's a dad move, right? You squeeze the cheeks, right? And you look at her and you go, I love you so much. And I want her right in front of my face. No, no mask, no social distancing, threat of COVID. Like, I just want her to hear this, right? Right? Look at me. 
Look at me. I'm about to say something important to you. I want you to hear this, and I want you to, to hear it rightly and correctly. And he says, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them. And he thought, I'm about to get the alms, the, the thing that I need. But, but, but notice what happens in verse 6. Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood up and he began to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him. This was the guy who sat by the beautiful gate at the temple asking for alms. And it says they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Gold and silver I do not have. Isn't this how God often works? The thing that we ask for, and oftentimes the thing that we long for the most, that we we repetitively go to God over and over and we ask him for, he oftentimes, we find ourselves on the receiving end of him answering something that we're not even asking. And there's two responses to that. One, we can grow in frustration. Well, God, didn't you hear what what I asked? Or we recognize as we walk in maturity that oftentimes the thing that we're asking God to do is not the right thing. It's not the correct thing. And God sometimes has a way of answering prayers that we've not even asked for, but we receive them in the form of blessings. Like he works that way all the time. Listen, give me alms, help me, show me mercy. Hey, listen, I don't have any of that stuff that you're asking for because what I have is actually better for you. And to me, when I read this story, and I've read this story over and over and over again, I'm always challenged that maybe there's a place in my life where I'm shortchanging God working because I'm asking perhaps sometimes for for superficial or or shallow prayers. Not that God's not concerned with those. God cares about even my my most shallow longings and desires. He, He does care. But I'm asking the wrong things at times. Here he was, gold and silver, I do not have, but what I do have, I give it to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. Get up and walk. And notice what the response was of the lame man. He was taken by the right hand, he raised him up. Notice that word in verse seven, it says immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. No rehab, no boot, no crutches, no pain meds, no physicians, except Luke who was there writing and observing, no doctors, no medical bills, nothing to to look forward or, or to dread. Get up and walk. And it says immediately he gets up. He gets up. When God answers something miraculously, he does it with a sense of immediacy. It's one of the ways we often know whether or not something was really a miracle or or something else. 
whether it really was divine. It's a, it's a way that we wrestle with. Is that, is that really of God or is it not of God? Is that, is that human effort or, or is that something supernatural? Or is it somehow sort of woven together in, in the midst of all this? Immediately, his feet and his ankles were made strong and it says he, he got up leaping, stands up, enters the temple, walking and, and praising God. Like something changed in him physically and something spiritually. And so here's my challenge for us this morning as a church. It says the people seeing him leaping and jumping and walking in a place and in a posture of enthusiasm, walking in a place of joy, they watched the miraculous thing and people were like in awe and in one, like look at this guy. Look at the testimony that, that he's living. Look what we're seeing with, with our eyes and, and we're experiencing it right now. Like, this is amazing. And I ask you this morning because I have, have searched in my own heart this week and I've never been lame in the sense of my, I've, I've broken bones before. I've been unable to do things, but I've, I've not been lame for 40 years. I, I don't know what that's like. I, I hope to God that I, I never know what that's like. And I don't mean to over-spiritualize what, what's happening here in the text, but I do think it's appropriate by way of application to make this observation and statement. We were, were lame, and the Bible says we were, we were lame in the sense that we were dead in our sins and trespasses before Christ. We were unable to see anything good. We were incapable uh, of seeing the goodness of God. We were dead. We weren't wounded we, weren't, uh, we didn't have blurry vision. Um, we, we, we weren't in a wheelchair. We were dead in our sins. And then the Bible says we've been made alive, like we've been brought from death to life in the moment of salvation. But I think some of us have been brought to death and into life, but we're still walking around like we're dead people. We're still walking around like lame we're still walking away in and, and the way that, that this guy was, was pathetic in the sense of like he was completely dependent upon friends and, and God has made him new and God has made you new in Christ. But, but some of us are still, we're, we're walking with a limp, spiritually speaking. There are moments as a pastor, I, I want to walk with the limp because I want people to see the limp. Like I'm hurt or I'm wounded or, or I'm, I, 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 I was the object of someone's wrath. Like I want you to see that. And we become um, really what the gospel moves us away from, that, that we are victims, yes, of our sin and, and our fallenness. But, but in Christ, he has equipped us and is growing us to be confident people in the gospel, walking with the only identity that Jesus gives us. That I'm not defined by, by the color of my skin. I'm not defined by, by how much money I make. I'm not defined by my occupation. I'm not defined by my wife or, or my kids or my home or my car. These are not the things that ultimately bring me worth. They're a part of me, yes, but, but ultimately what I want people to see is Christ and Christ crucified in my life. Like this is the heart of the gospel. And so this lame man is restored to, to being able to walk. And in him, we see not only his need of, of being healed, but also spiritually speaking, we see also our own need for salvation. Our own need for, for the spirit of God to say, get up and walk, be made new. 
And this is what, what God is doing in his word. But in the same way that they gave away that message, get up and take him by the hand. Listen to me. One of the things that we have to remember as the church is we cannot give something away that we do not possess. You cannot give somebody something that you personally don't have. You can't show someone uh, the gospel if the gospel doesn't have you or you don't have the gospel. You can't talk about eternal life with someone. You can describe it. You can maybe draw a picture. You can maybe paint something on a ceiling, but you can't give something away that you do not have. And maybe this morning, in fact, I'm convinced this morning that instead of some of us praying for our neighbor or praying for a family member or praying for a co-worker to come to know Christ, what I'm praying for is for you to come to know Christ. For you to be possessed by that gospel. To make sure that you have been changed by him that he has saved you and redeemed you of your sins and that you were once far from God, but now you are walking closely with him. And if God, listen to me, if God has saved you and you know for a fact that I am saved and I am walking with God, then we have to make sure that though we introspectively go, am I walking with the Lord? Is my identity found in him? Then the result of that is who am I going to give that away to next? Who do I pass that along to? Maybe it's a family member or a coworker at this moment. Maybe it's a child or, or, or a granddaughter or a, or a grandson, but you can't give away something that you don't possess. A spirit-filled church, Travis Avenue, full of the Holy Spirit, is going to give away what it has. Here's the question that's haunting to me. Are we giving away the right things? Because you see, we, we give away things no matter what it is we think we have. And, and, and more often than not, it's not so much making sure that it's our possession, but it's rather asking the question, what is it that is possessing us? And if we're insecure as a church, we are going to project insecurity. If, if our identity is found in, in worship styles or, or programs, then we are going to reflect worship styles and programs. We're going to project those things. That's the gospel that we're preaching. If we're apathetic towards injustices in, in our city and in the country, we will project those injustices. You see what I'm saying? You are going to project whatever it is that possesses you and holds you captive. Whether or not you choose to do it or not, you do it subconsciously by what you say and and perhaps by what you, you don't say. But it says that their response to watching this lame man get up and to walk, it says they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They, they were in awe at, at what was going on. And, and so here's what I want you to understand. If, if we were to back up and we looked at last week and just remind of the past two weeks, what just happened prior to 
this event right here, the first miracle. We see at the end of, of Pentecost coming, Peter preaches this sermon. And do you remember in the text how many people were saved because of this really simple sort of almost turn and burn kind of sermon, right? Uh, there, there wasn't any media. There, there was no video. Uh, it was just simple like, here's the gospel. You know, you're a terrible person. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ. Walk forward with the good. And like 3,000 people get saved, right? 3,000. Now, I know a lot of pastors that when they hit the level of 3,000 and they get to that level of, of many, they become sort of indifferent to the one. But here's what I want us to capture in this and not miss this by way of context. 3,000 people were saved, and yet you have these two men who are walking to the temple who stop to pay attention to the one. The one. Perhaps maybe the most pathetic of all of them, like the least of these, the guy that was overly marginalized and they stop and, and they, they bring about this, this ministry of, of healing towards them. And I think by way of application, the point for the church this morning is that those who reach the many need to care about reaching the one. Like that's the goal. If all we do is we care about what happens here in this room and, and during the corporate time, we will fail to, to reach the one who, who is yet to come. It reminds me of that, of that story that some of you have heard before of that guy who was walking uh, down the beach and he sees all of these uh, starfish that had, had, had washed ashore and they were struggling to, to get back in the water. And so there's thousands upon thousands of them. And so he walks down the beach, he picks up the starfish and he's, he's throwing them back in the ocean one by one. And this young man walks up behind him and is like, what are you doing? Like there's, there's literally millions of these on the beach. Like you're never going to make any, any kind of impact. It's not going to matter what you do. And so he reaches down by his foot and he, he picks up another starfish and he, he throws it in the water and he looks at the young man and he says, well, it mattered to that one. And he reaches down on the other side and he, he picks up another one and he throws it in the water. He says, it mattered to that one. And he picks up another and another. And he did what he could with the one. God oftentimes will not entrust certain people with larger groups until they manage the groups that they've got and they, they do it in a healthy way that, that honors him and that they care for one another. It matters to the one. Those who reach the many care about the one. As Peter responds in the sermon, he, he challenges the people of God to, to look up and, and to look in about their own life, but he says to look ahead. If you, if you look in verse 21, he says this. He says, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring. He's preaching this point after this miracle and restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. He's pointing them to this, this future restoration that's coming for his people. God's, God's kingdom in heaven and, and God's kingdom on earth. And, and it's what theologians call the already but not yet. We've talked about it very vaguely here. But, but if I were to say, uh, if there was one dominant theme outside of, of the gospel and the forgiveness of sins that I'm, I'm going to preach about over the next 30 years, it's this theme right here. Because what it does is it helps us capture this idea of, of what the world is supposed to look like. What Fort Worth is supposed to be like when, when you've got a committed group of people in, in, in a church this side that are just completely sold out to the gospel and walking in faithfulness. How we experience God's kingdom 
here on this earth now. It's the picture of Isaiah 11 where he says the lion is going to lay down with the lamb. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. It's Isaiah 35 where he says the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. This is what God intends for the world to be like. He's going to make it whole at some point. And we are longing for the day as we walk in obedience that that we live in a world. Our hope should be, listen, we recognize that the world is full of injustice, but we want a world that that is full of peace, do we not? We recognize disparity at times, but but we we have an everlasting hope that, that we want to bring about change in a good way. But all of that change and all of that hope cannot, must not, friends, be divorced and separated from the gospel of Jesus. Otherwise, we we end up, frankly, with a chaz. Like, that's what it becomes. And and a failure to to recognize, because I I think at the root of of this this, this view is is their their view of humanity is that it's not fallen or broken. Like, the term for that in in the theological circles is it's Pelagian in its belief that that we're all good moral people at at our core. And and the truth of the gospels, we know this, like, we are are separated in our sin from God, like at birth. And the trespasses of sin, the consequence of that is death. We are separated from God. We may be well intended with that statement, but what their worldview doesn't take into account is that malevolence, evil, uh, people will, will choose sometimes when left to their own devices the wrong way. We murder, they steal. You know, it's one of the other videos that I watched was, you know, it's this, it, it was portrayed as this harmonious, you know, neighborhood where it's peace and loving until um, an infiltrator came in, broke a glass while they're occupying, tried to steal from the store. And then one of the founding members of the Chaz group was like, had a baseball bat. And was like, you steal again, I'm gonna whoop your tail with this baseball bat. So he becomes like the very thing that he's against. And it's just a matter of, well, who's in control and who's in charge at this point? And what value system do you have? What's guiding that decision? What makes that wrong? Because you say it's wrong or, or is there something else that, that inevitably makes that wrong and, and that act evil? And we would say ultimately that our worldview would dictate the idea that we believe that those principles are found here. You know, I uh, ask the question often, get asked the question often as a pastor and have asked it. Is God still performing miracles like we see here in this, in this text? Does God still make the lame walk after 40 years? I've never seen that personally. But I want to believe that God can, if he wants to, heal. Otherwise, he, he wouldn't be much of a sovereign God, would he? He can. Is that a common practice of God miraculously doing that? I don't know. I, I, I don't know whether it was the doctor that did it or, or the Lord did it. I, I, there's often times where people do overcome they, cancer, heart attacks, strokes, like miraculous things do tend to happen. And whether that was a combo of medicine and, or, or faith, I, I don't know. I, I have no idea. O- only God knows. 
I want to believe God is still performing miracles. God can. We, at least we acknowledge that, right? God can perform miracles like that. But here's the difference maybe between me and, and some other people. I don't believe that that miracle is dependent upon my faith or, or me believing and willing it to happen. I don't believe that if I just believe enough that it's going to happen, that in some way I can manipulate or trick God into performing a miracle outside of his sovereign will. I can't do that. I can't. God never changes. He cannot be manipulated by me. Can God do it? 100% he can. But ultimately, everybody who buys into the notion of faith healing, here, here's, the, here's the truth in, in Christian history. Every one of, of, of the greatest faith healers of all time, guess what? They all die. They all die. So at some point, somebody's faith didn't work if you followed the logic of many of those men and women. Can God? 100%. Does that mean that we should ignore the modern practices of medicine? 100% no. Let me tell you something. If my wife or kids or, or myself was diagnosed with cancer tomorrow or I had a stroke or a heart attack, I would say, you, you take me to the very best oncologist. You take me to the very best cardiologist. I wanna go to the best hospital. I wanna have the best doctor. I wanna have the most gifted surgeon that exists. Wherever we have to go, we will do whatever it takes because I believe that all truth is God's truth. Science and faith are not mutually exclusive things. I just think science has not caught up with, with what philosophers and theologians have known all along. They're, they're, they're getting up close to the top of the hill, but they haven't quite made it. And science and faith are not mutually exclusive things. And we embrace those things. And when you need medicine, you should take medicine. When you need to get treatment, you, you should get treatment. You should, you should pursue those things. Listen, we, we had a, a, an opportunity as a church to say, well, we're just gonna believe by faith that over the past 13 weeks that we weren't meeting, we're just gonna trust that God would protect us all. We could have had that posture. A lot of the churches that had that posture ended up with these mass breakouts of COVID in their church. One church, it infected about 40 people in, a, in an older choir, three of them died. Because the pastor was like, we're just gonna believe that God will protect us. And then they get infected. Well, then it's like, well, who didn't believe? It's nonsense. We listen to wisdom. We apply that wisdom as best we can. And then we, we go forward with, with the gospel and, and trust and faith and, and hope in those things. But this man, he needed help and he asked for help. And the response was the help was given in the form of Jesus. And so I want to conclude with this statement this morning. The posture of the church has to be both of these two things, not one over the other. Both of these things must move forward together and be locked together. They're just two separate sides to a coin. They're heads and tails. But the church thrives when we give ourselves to the work of the gospel attached to the message of the gospel. We can't just go around and, and, and proclaim the good news and then not help our brothers and sisters that need help. At the same time, we can't just go help people and, and divorce that from the gospel. Like we will meet your physical needs, but we want you to know that there's a greater spiritual need out there that we want to tend to. And when you need help in those circumstances, we want to be the place where you get help. When you need counseling, the posture of our church is we will help. 
When you need community and fellowship and you need friendship, the posture of our church is we will help. If you have a vision for helping others, the posture of our church is that we will help. If you need medical care, you need to be looked after. The posture of our church is we will help. You need finances and and resources. You, You need books and understanding. The posture of our church is we will help. In answer to the question, is God still performing miracles today? Yes. He may not be making people that are, that are at this church in particular that are, that are lame for 40 years and can't walk, but God is saving people. He's redeeming people. He is helping people. He is reconciling people here at this church to one another, but more importantly to God. Yes, God is still performing miracles. Yes, God is still doing the very thing that he has done for thousands upon thousands of years, reconciling the world to himself through his son, Jesus. Pray with me. Father in heaven, We thank you that we have been reconciled to you through Christ. God, we pray that we would be ferocious in our proclamation of the gospel, but that we would come alongside our brothers and sisters who need your help. That we would do both, God. Let us be a church that as we grow bigger, we also grow smaller. And and you give us the many, but Lord, help us steward the few. Lord, help us find our one this week that we can share with, that we can minister to, that we can help. Would you help us help others? Lord, if there are any in this room or watching on the TV screen that do not know you personally, we pray that they would come to faith today. They would confess that Jesus is Lord, that they would uh, ask for forgiveness for their sins and be reconciled with you. We pray now that as your people respond in faith that you would hear our prayers and the longings of our heart to walk in obedience and biblical faithfulness. We ask these things in Christ's name. Would you stand as our worship team leads us and close out our service? And you can come out of this altar and pray um, or sing right where you are, but let us worship our God. He is good and worthy of our praise.